as we consider uh, his truth in our lives. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where we've been since Christmas, uh, December of 2007. Seems like a long, long time ago. I counted up this morning. Uh, this is my 33rd sermon in Luke, and we've had about six others of ones that I haven't preached. So we are we are well deep into uh, into this study, and we've come to what we call Holy Week or the Passion Week of Christ. Uh, and we come this morning to a text uh, that I think is one of the, the darkest moments in all of Luke's gospel. It's not yet uh, where Jesus is at uh, Gethsemane uh, crying out to God. We have not yet come to the cross, but I think we come to a, a verse that we skip over, uh, a passage, a few verses that we skip over pretty quickly. We note them, uh, but we don't really spend too much time to, to dwell on them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and park here this morning for a few minutes because I think there's a, an important a message for, uh, for all of us. Uh, because I believe there's an evil in the world. Uh, I believe it's an evil that goes beyond just man's natural tendencies uh, that produce uh, things like lies or, or stealing or, or selfishness, uh, greed. I think there's an evil in the world that uh, is not limited to just our, our strife uh, or our discord. Uh, it's much more profound than the mistakes that I make uh, on a regular basis, or the things that I fail to do as well as I possibly could do. Uh, you know, we shake our heads in dif- disbelief when we hear about things uh, such as Columbine High School and high school students being slaughtered by their classmates, or when we turn on the news and we see the story of Virginia Tech and 32 college students massacred by, by a man on that campus. Uh, and even a year ago yesterday, as we think about what happened at, uh, at Kirkwood City Hall. In, uh, I guess it was July of 2001, our family was on a trip to the East Coast, and uh, we got, for the first time when our kids were really old enough to appreciate it, we got to, uh, to visit Washington, D.C., and we spent uh, a good bit of time in the nation's capitals, and one of the things we did was we went to uh, the Holocaust Museum. Now, if you haven't been to D.C., uh, or if you haven't been to the Holocaust Museum, I would encourage you to do both. I would encourage you to visit the Capitol, but I would encourage you uh, to go to the Holocaust Museum, but I will tell you that I could only first time when our kids were really Holocaust Museum. Now, if you haven't been to D.C. Uh, or if you haven't been to the Holocaust Museum, I would encourage you to do both. I would encourage you to visit the Capitol trip to the East Coast, and we're really old enough to appreciate it. We got to uh, to visit Washington D.C. and we spent uh, a good bit of time in the nation's capitals. And one of the things we did was we went to uh, the Holocaust Museum. Now, if you haven't been to D.C. Uh, or if you haven't been to the Holocaust Museum, I would encourage you to do both. I would encourage you to visit the Capitol, but I would encourage you uh, to go to the Holocaust Museum. But I will tell you that I could only stay for about 20 minutes. Uh, I literally uh, was overwhelmed uh, with the evil and the power behind that evil. And we see circumstances like that, and, and we ask questions like, what could possibly possess someone to do something like that? What could possibly possess a man to walk into a small Amish one-room schoolhouse and murder five young girls? I believe there is an evil in the world. But I think the better question is not what would possess a person, but rather who would possess a person to do such a thing. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, hear the word of God. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. The him to whom Luke is referring in those verses is Jesus. Then Satan 
entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this, uh, this passage, uh, verses that we tend to acknowledge and see them, but, but skip by pretty quickly. Uh, perhaps, Lord, we look at a couple verses like this and think, what could this possibly have to do with me? Lord, I pray that we would, uh, how do I want to say it? That we would be properly disturbed this morning. Not to the extent that we uh, misunderstand our faith and we become fearful, but also not just uh, casually observing and think that there is no danger, spiritual danger in our own lives. Father, this is a, a difficult topic, but this is your word and it's true. So I pray that we would worship you this morning with our minds, with our hearts, that we would uh, be open to what you want to say to us. Father, I pray that you would keep me from uh, misspeaking. Father, I confess my sin to you. I pray that you wouldn't allow me to stand in the way of what you want to say to your people this morning. Lord Jesus, all of us have the same thing in common today. We need to hear from you. We need to know your eternal truth. We need to apply it to our lives. So I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, whenever a preacher is preparing a sermon, he always or she always looks for uh, the opportunities to inject something somewhat lighthearted, <laughs> to, uh, to offer an illustrative material that perhaps kind of breaks the tension, so to speak. Couldn't find any this week. There's nothing uh, really to uh, to smile about when you come to a passage like this. It's it's somewhat disturbing, and so I want to warn you ahead of time that uh, uh, this may not be kind of the, the typical Tom Rick sermon, so to speak. But I think it is an important one, and I think there is an application here for us. Although I think we need to be very careful how we understand this text, and I'm going to to do my best with this passage and some other passages of Scripture, kind of tackling uh, tackling this topic of Judas Iscariot and what happened in his life. Let me very briefly just uh, give you the context of these verses. Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, this conversation that takes place between Judas uh, and the religious leaders was, was perhaps on a, a Tuesday of that week, so it's within about 48 hours. Uh, of when Jesus actually falls into the hands of his enemies. But Jesus is, is in town, as uh, a whole host of Israelites are, for the Feast uh, of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover. And those two feasts are literally back-to-back. When Passover ends, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins immediately. And it's literally about a week's worth of celebrating. And so uh, we're coming up to the Passover and to the celebration. So there are lots and lots of folks in town. A lot of people are coming in Uh, to celebrate. The religious elite of Jesus, they have moved from jealousy and frustration with Jesus uh, to outright opposition. Uh, They've decided that he has to go. They've decided that he needs to be killed. Now you can see the tension mounting. Uh, If you sat down this afternoon and just read Luke from start to finish, you just took about an hour and read through Luke's gospel, you would see 
uh, that early on Jesus has lots of followers, including uh, lots of those folks who would be considered rabbis or teachers in that day. But as Jesus's ministry progresses over three to three and a half years, there begins to be a mounting animosity, a mounting anger that culminates, uh, we see actually back in chapter 19 and now again in chapter 22 with, with the high priest, with, with the religious elite, the, 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 the bosses of the bosses, uh, the most important religious leaders in Israel saying Jesus has to die. Jesus has a huge following among the common people of his day. He's an extraordinarily popular preacher. Uh, And many of these people have come from all the surrounding region and as far north as Galilee, and they've come into Jerusalem. And so this this climactic confrontation is in the works, but the religious leaders are asking themselves a question, how can we pull this off and not cause a riot? (laughs) How can we do this without harming ourselves? That's the context in which we find this passage. And yet as they ask the question, as they search for the answer of how they, can, how they can do away with Jesus quietly, their answer actually finds them. They don't solve their problem. The solution actually presents itself to them. And now what has become one of the most infamous names in all of human history, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, one of the 12 who would turn his back on the Lord Jesus and offer him up to his enemies. Uh, let me read to you just a, a brief paragraph of description of Judas that uh, William Hendrickson, a, uh, a commentator on the Gospel of Luke, has written uh, about this one that uh, we've come to know as the one who betrayed Jesus. He says, Judas was, after all, a specially privileged person. He was one of the twelves, as all four evangelists take the trouble to point out. For many months, Judas had been living in Christ's immediate presence, has been eating, drinking, traveling with him. He had noticed the strength in the master's voice when he stilled the storm, cursed the barren fig tree, and rebuked those who devoured widows' houses. But Judas had also become aware of the tenderness of that same voice when it pleaded with sinners, including Judas, to come to him and rest. He had listened to the Savior's marvelous discourses and to the decisive and authoritative answers he had given to the many questions that had been hurled at him sometimes with the intention of ensnaring him. Judas had watched the great physician in the act of tenderly restoring the handicapped or bending down mercifully over the sick and healing them. And then even adding at times, your faith has made you well. Yes, Judas had witnessed all of this and much more. And then he decided to deliver this unsurpassably powerful, wise, and compassionate benefactor into the hands of cruel men for 30 pieces of silver. That's how Hendrickson and many others, and I think rightly so, describe what happened in the life of Judas Iscariot. But behind Judas, lurking in the shadows, as it were, whispering lies in his ears, magnifying his doubts, his frustrations. Turning his misgivings into resentment and bitterness was one whose evil knows no limits and knows no boundaries. Luke states very clearly that Satan <clears throat> entered into Judas's heart, and we'll come back and look at verse 3 in just a few minutes. But when you begin to talk about Satan in our day and age, when you begin to, to bring up the term of the devil, 
uh, you run a serious risk uh, of people maybe tolerating you and being polite to you, thinking that you're a simpleton or uh, a bit of a fool. Uh, maybe they consider you're someone who believes in old wives' tales. I remember back when I was in third grade at Robinson Elementary School. You know, you kind of have some of these moments that stand out in your mind when you're a kid, and this is one of them. It was uh, Halloween, and it was back when you could all just kind of dress up and go get candy, and, and it was maybe a bit more of an innocent age than today. Uh, but we were all in our, in our Halloween uh, outfits in third grade in Mrs. Robinson's class. And uh, one of the kids there was dressed as what we would call the devil, had the pitchfork and the horns and the tail and all that. And I uh, was kind of walking around the classroom trying to poke the other kids. And uh, one of the things that um, my teacher, Mrs. Hunter, said uh, at Robinson Elementary School that morning was, now, kids, we all know, don't we, that there really isn't a devil. Well, even at that age, I was a bit of evangelist, and I shot my hand straight up. And I said, uh, this might be the humorous part of the sermon. Mrs. Robinson, I don't know where you got your information, but, but Satan's alive and well. He, he's really here. You know, and she kind of looked at me like, poor child, patted me on the head. Uh, I don't know, you know, what's gotten into you, and kind of went on with her day. When you begin to talk about Satan as a person, people begin to uh, look at you just a little bit differently. Now, there, there may be some, some reason for that. If you think about uh, the world in which we live, uh, we've made Satan to be a cartoon at times. We've made him to be a Halloween costume. You know, we have some of these, these fun and yet maybe slightly sinister uh, images of Satan, but that little guy on the right looks like he's up to no good, but he doesn't really look like he could do that much harm to you. And uh, certainly uh, the young lady over on the left is just dressed up for a party and just going to have a little bit of innocent fun, isn't she? Hollywood has has picked up on this, and uh, the media has done quite a bit with images of Satan. You have all the way from the the bizarre on the, the far right uh, to actually the character in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, and below you have Al Pacino uh, in a very disturbing movie that he was in a few years ago where he actually, you find out uh, as the movie goes on that he's actually a Satan in the flesh. So Hollywood has learned uh, how to make a buck off of this image of Satan. Uh, but nobody really takes it too seriously, do they? Uh, but even the art world uh, for centuries uh, has picked up on this idea uh, of Satan and him being a fallen angel. The, the picture on the far right is is uh, from Dante's Inferno. And so there's, there is within our culture this conversation that is ongoing about Satan. But when you, but when you really get to sitting down and talking to someone seriously about this, you really, you know, you look your next door neighbor in the, in the face, you say, I believe that there is a devil. I believe that there is a person called Satan. People begin to kind of step back and, and fold their arms and, and get to be just a little worried about their next door neighbor. So I want to look at this passage this morning and some other verses and ask the question, who is Satan? Is he real? And what does all of this have to do with me? Now, Scripture gives literally dozens and dozens of passages about the person of Satan, about the fallen angel Satan. I could read for you, I could, I could probably take the next 30 to 40 minutes if I were going to read every passage in Scripture uh, that speaks to Satan. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to indulge your patience this morning, and I'm going to put some verses on the screen uh, from the Old Testament and from the New Testament and I would simply ask you to, to listen as I read them and to think about what these passages are saying uh, about Satan. The first one is the oldest passage, passage about Satan. It goes all the way back to Genesis uh, and in the Garden of Eden. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And a little bit later on in the New Testament in Job, we read these words. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God? For no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and Satan inflicts all of this this pain on Job. Job loses all of his possessions and his children are killed in a tragic tragic, uh, uh, accident at their house. And then later on, uh, this encounter, the second encounter happens. And this is where we pick up these verses. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and for on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Let's move over to the the New Testament. Uh, We actually studied this passage way back when at the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Luke, but this is Jesus' encounter uh, with Satan before his public ministry began. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jump ahead further on in the New Testament, Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to give you two different passages, one in chapter 2 and one in 11. This is why I wrote, 
that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive indeed. And what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And then Peter writes in his letter to his Christian friends, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced through your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then one last passage out of Revelation chapter 12. And this uh, section of Revelation chapter 12 is describing the spiritual actions that are taking place after the resurrection of Jesus. Now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Uh, it'll be a long, long time probably before you hear me read that many verses again back to back. But I did that for a very specific purpose, and it's simply this. When you're talking about Satan and what Scripture says about him, and again, I picked just a handful. There are dozens more. You must understand that Scripture is unequivocally clear. The Bible does not mince its words. We're not talking about some presence of evil that is nebulous, that is uh, not uh, a person, but rather just kind of a a source, so to speak, of of power within the universe. But we're talking about a very real uh, angelic being. He is active and he is our enemy. And when we come to a passage like Luke chapter 22, therefore, we must understand that this is not explaining away Judas's actions. It's not saying there, there, you know, there's something else that was going on behind the scenes that kind of got under his skin, uh, and that's why he did what he did. But rather, there is a warning here for us. There is an explanation here for us, and we need to understand the passage for what it is. So I want to look at these verses again for just a moment with you and ask a couple of questions, and then give you a couple of reminders as we consider how to, uh, how to deal with this, with this very real enemy. First of all, I want to come back to to verses 1 and 2 where in chapter 22 where Luke describes uh, the scene. It's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, It's called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they could put Jesus to death for they feared the people. One of the questions I want to ask here is what are your circumstances? What's going on in your life? Are you aware of your surroundings? There's no question that as Luke looks back into, into this event, 
in the life of Jesus, he ex- explaining the fact that there's a battle that's brewing, <laughs> that there's something that's going on here uh, that, is, that is coming to be a confrontation between Jesus and his avowed enemies. Now, there's no question that Judas had to understand this. We read again throughout Luke's gospel, you see the tension mounting. You see that the battle coming to its, its peak. And Judas, there's absolutely no way possible that Judas could have spent the time he spent with Jesus and then been ignorant of the fact that there was a real challenge that was awaiting them in Jerusalem. I wonder at times if I look at my circumstances and I really see them for what they are, or I simply see coincidence, or I simply see a a little string of bad luck, so to speak, or whether I really take the time to step back and say, you know what, there's something spiritual that's happening here behind the physical. Am I aware of my surroundings? Am I spiritually in tune with what's going on in my life? I think one of Satan's greatest ploys today is to keep us extraordinarily busy, to keep us uh, being uh, under this mountain, this pile of information and data. Uh, we, uh, we went to see a, a, a little a movie last night. Cindy and I did. Um, he's not that into you. It's kind of romantic. Um, I won't say chick flick. That would be an inappropriate thing to say. But um, this uh, one young woman was explaining how hard it was to break up with someone. And she had to text uh, you know, his BlackBerry. And he had to, to BlackBerry her cell phone. And her cell phone had to call his. You know, she said, I wish what happened in the good old days where you could just you know, break up with someone you know, face-to-face. There's this mountain of information. There's this mountain of technology, and it keeps us hopping, and it keeps us busy, and it keeps us inundated with everything, most of which really is inconsequential in our lives. Most of the the data that comes into my life is not all that important. But the fact that there's a mountain of information covering me up ought to make me stop and say, you know what? I, I wonder if I'm taking time to really assess my circumstances. Am I spiritually in tune with my own life? Are you and I aware of our circumstances? But then verse three, which I think is is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was numbered with the 12. Satan somehow played on on Judas's doubts, perhaps, maybe on his anger, maybe on his disappointment. Scripture doesn't say why Judas betrayed Jesus. Scripture doesn't say that, that he was angry, that uh, Jesus wasn't, you know, uh, really coming in and taking over with power and authority and running the Romans out of town. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us that, that Judas was fed up with Jesus not standing up uh, to the religious leader of, of, of their day and all of their hypocrisy and putting them in their place. It doesn't explain to us. We can only surmise. Uh, and so that's all I'm doing right now. I'm not telling you what Scripture says, but if you, if you read between the lines a bit, there's some amount of disappointment or fear or anxiety. There was something that that Judas was experiencing emotionally that's of which Satan took advantage. And it began to whisper those lies into Judas's ears. And somehow he began to be convinced that the best way forward was to betray the one who had been claiming to be the Messiah, the one who had called him friend, who had welcomed him into his most intimate company. And I wonder sometimes, uh, to what am I listening? What voices am I hearing in my life? And am I aware that there's one who wants to speak into my life lies? 
in order to not build me up, in order not to, to help me or to, to, uh, to save me or to encourage me, but because he's angry because his time is short and he wants to come and destroy. He wants to disrupt my life. He wants to hurt me. Am I listening to that message? I had a friend stop in my, my office yesterday morning. I was working on my sermon, and uh, he was there for a meeting that was going on with the Stephen ministers, and they had taken a little break, and he came in and plopped down, and we were just chatting. It was not a planned meeting. Uh, we were just kind of talking about our kids and our families, uh, and he looked me in the eye. He said, how are you doing right now? And I, uh, I don't know why, but I got kind of emotional about it, and, and it wasn't a big deal, but I said, you know, I've been struggling with this, and I kind of share with them a little bit about what I was struggling with. Again, it was not a huge deal. Uh, but he looked me in the eye and said, you know those are lies, don't you? He said, you know those aren't true, right? I said, well, yeah. And so he said, he told me again, you know those are lies, don't you? I said, okay, you got yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm listening now. You have my attention. He goes, those are from the evil one. They're not true. Satan's trying to discourage you. He's trying to get you off track. Don't let him do that. I'm going to start praying for you about this, and you pray about it, and, and I'll call a couple buddies, and you know, we just, we'll take care of you. Don't worry about it, but you got to know their lies. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, I just kind of lost track. I wasn't paying attention. And all of a sudden, that subtle mistruth was being spoken in the back of my head. And that doesn't come from nowhere, friends. <laughs> There's a source to those lies, and it's the one who wants to destroy us. And Judas listened <laughs> to the wrong person. But there's a culpability here as well. Verse 4, it says this, speaking of Judas, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Judas went beyond listening. He allowed those lies to dictate his decisions. He based the most important choice of his life on what wasn't true. And he went in the wrong direction. You see, what Judas had at this moment was a question of faith. Whether Judas was going to place his faith in Christ as his Lord and follow him no matter what the consequences, or whether whether Judas was going to reject the lordship of Jesus and go his own way. Friends, every verse that we put on the screen, and many, many more like them, that's what Satan boils it down to. Jesus isn't Lord. Go all the way back to Genesis. Did God really say, don't eat any of the trees? That's not, that's not what God said. God said, don't eat of this one tree. God says, you know what? If you take everything away from Job, if you take away his health, he will curse you and die. He will say, you're not Lord. That's what Satan wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in my life. And Judas allowed that lie the rejection of Christ's lordship to motivate his actions and his decisions. How am I being motivated? What are my actions, my decisions? Are they honoring Christ or have I maybe been listening to a wrong message in my head? Well, Judas ended up with the worst deal in history. The reason this verse is so sad in my mind is not just because Judas betrayed a friend of his. That That is disastrous. That's painful to read. It's painful to think about Judas three and a half years probably with Jesus and then turning his back on him like that. But that's, that's not the part that really disturbs me, friends, because Jesus was going to the cross. He was going there because he loves you and me and he was going to pay for your sins and he was going to pay for my sins and nothing was going to stand in his way. What disturbs me is what happened to Judas. After Jesus is betrayed, we read in Matthew 27 that Judas goes back to the chief priest. He says, I betrayed an innocent man. What I've done is wrong. I can't keep this money. 
And the chief priests, the Pharisees, they scoff at him. And they ridicule him. And he goes out and he hangs himself. And he steps into eternity without the blood of Christ covering him. I can't think of anything worse that could happen to a person. And I'm the guy that couldn't stay in the Holocaust Museum more than 20 minutes. Can't imagine anything worse happening to someone but to step out of this life and into the next, not knowing Jesus Christ. Judas got the worst deal he possibly could. How do we apply this text? What does this have to do with you and me this morning? Well, let me talk to you this morning for just a minute if you're not a disciple of Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in Christ yet, if you're saying, you know, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm exploring, I'm looking into it, but I really, I really haven't uh, decided whether it's for me. Or maybe you're here this morning because you're, you're being nice to your spouse and they want you to come to church with you or your parents brought you. You say, you know what, I really don't believe it. I, I've rejected it out of hand. I want you to understand uh, that that is not a neutral voice that's speaking into your life. You may think you've arrived at that decision through logic and through reason, through care. I want you to understand in all humility, and I don't say this in an in in arrogant way, that's not how you came to this decision. You came to this decision because the father of lies is telling you something that isn't true because he wants to destroy your soul for all of eternity. And the worst thing you could do is base your life on that decision, on that input. You may leave this week with the intention of coming back next Sunday. Let me tell you something right now. That'll be a struggle for you. Something will happen in your life this week. And I'm not a prophet, okay? This is not like something mysterious, okay? This isn't where we get weird and start pulling snakes out of the box and all that kind of stuff, okay? Something will happen in your life this week that will keep you, that will try to keep you from coming back. Maybe next Sunday morning you wake up and a friend that you haven't seen for six months calls and says, hey, I'm in town and I only have time for a cup of coffee now. You got to decide, am I going to go and explore the claims of Christ or am I going to go hang out with a friend? That doesn't happen by coincidence, friends. There aren't any coincidences. There's a battle that is raging. You can't see it and I can't see it. It's behind the scenes. It might be the best intentioned thing in the world will happen. Or it might be an unmitigated disaster. You say, see, I went to church one Sunday and I knew it was all wrong and now look what's happened to me. Guess where that message is coming from? If you're here this morning and you're seeking, let me implore you as best I can that you will understand that there is a voice speaking into your life that wants to do you great harm. And I want to invite you to put your faith in Christ, to reject that voice. But I know a lot of you here this morning are disciples of Jesus. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. The blood of Christ covers you, and Satan cannot possess you. He can't own you. Uh, He can't do to you what he did to Judas because as we're going to see in just a moment, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. And we're going to to leave on that positive note. But I do think there is a spiritual battle going on. I know there's a spiritual battle going on. And I know we're called to engage. And I know we're called to fight for our brothers and sisters in Christ and to support one another in him. And we're called to engage in the battle. So I just want to give you three very quick uh, suggestions this morning. Uh, that I believe comes straight from Scripture. The first is this. We need to pray for spiritual protection. My buddy who came by my office yesterday said, I'm going to pray for you. The fact that he shared some insights with me was great, but the best thing he could do is pray for me. Because Scripture says very clearly, Jesus, how did he teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Some translations have that, deliver us from the evil one. We need to pray that for one another. 
Satan wants to, to whisper these lies in your ear. He wants to ruin your marriage. He wants to, to bring harm and wreak havoc in your life. And you've got to pray against that. And I've got to pray against that. We need to pray for one another. Secondly, we need to understand that we're in a battle, as I said before. And we need to prepare for that battle on a daily basis. I'm not going to put this passage on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. But it's found in Ephesians chapter 6. You can go back and look at it this afternoon if you'd like to. Paul's writing to the Christians in Ephesus, and he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his strength and in his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against powers of over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And he goes on to talk about the different pieces of armor that we put on in order to fight this fight. Friends, we got to understand that. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm not saying that to you know, make you, you know, see a demon behind every bush. I'm, I'm not trying to get weird on us here this morning, but we need to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on and we've been called not to run away from the battle, not to hide from the battle, but to meet it head on through prayer and in the armor of God, are we engaging in the battle? God has equipped us to overcome, but are we engaging in the battle? The last passage of scripture, and the third suggestion I have, I will put on the screen. It comes out of 1 John chapter four, and it's simply this, the Holy Spirit resides within you and he is the powerful one. John writes to his Christian friends and he says this, by this, you know, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Uh, We ought not be looking for just one Antichrist at the end of history, but rather the spirit of the Antichrist throughout every generation. It's alive and well and ours just as well. Then John finishes up and he says, this little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I want to leave you with a cautious confidence this morning, not in yourself, not in your power, not in your wisdom, not in your logic, but I want to leave you with the confidence that not only has Jesus armed you for the battle, but he himself is present in your heart and in your life to equip you. And he is greater than the one who desires to destroy you. Judas made a terrible choice. He made an awful choice. Praise God that through Christ, the Spirit of God and the power of God reside within his disciples to withstand the evil one. But we live in a day and age where Satan is very real, where his power is seen throughout this globe. And so 